Collaboration between different disciplines in your organization can be difficult, and finding clarity and alignment on the right problem to solve and the right solution design is even more so. We approach improvement from our own limited perspective. We can't take into account the whole story. How is that effective? Aha! Paul Rayner's Event Storming Facilitation Virtual Workshop is a multi-day online event. It promotes collaboration between different disciplines to solve business problems in the most effective way. This virtual workshop with Paul consists of four sessions on September 28th through October 1st, 2020, from 9 a.m. to noon in Central Time each day. To register and get 20% off your ticket, visit virtualgenius.com slash events. Use the code VGGTC. In this highly hands-on and interactive virtual workshop, you'll learn advanced event-storming facilitation skills from large business discovery to collaborative solution design at the team level. Also, Paul is great. That's my personal opinion. Once again, to get 20% off your ticket, visit virtualgenius.com events and use the code VGGTC. Thanks, Jamie, and I'm here with our guest, Damien Byrne. Damien started working on internet startups in 1999 and never stopped. He has been an engineer, founder, CTO, VP, and product manager. Outside of tech, Damien is certified in ontological coaching, hypnosis, and neurolinguistic programming. He spent several years as a professional poker player, has performed as an actor in theater, commercials, network television, and film, and currently serves on the board of his local neighborhood council. Damien is the co-creator of Early Words, earlywords.io, a tool to help aspirational creatives achieve flow. He is the creator of Neighborhood Council Management System, ncmanager.org, which supports volunteers working in very local government. And he's also the creator of neverbust.com, the bankroll manager for, for professional poker players. Finally, Damien offers coaching and count. Finally, Damien offers coaching and consulting for software product teams at tolariasoftware.com. Hi, Damien. Hi. If I'd have known you were going to read the whole thing, I would not have sent such a long bio. <laughs> I kind of liked it, though. It had, like, you do a bunch of really interesting things that I want to ask you about now. <laughs> yeah, that's the bio for trying to impress people. That's not the bio for, like, reading out and expecting someone to listen. I don't know, but I'm, I'm impressed now, so it worked. <laughs> awesome. Before I ask you questions about your bio, there is a question that we always ask. You've been on the show before, so you may be expecting it. Or you've answered it before. But I'm still wondering, what is your superpower, and how did you acquire it? Oh, wow. Okay, so I anticipated the first half of that question. I did not anticipate the second half. <laughs> how did I acquire it? Wow. And, of course, I have so much anxiety about uh, being asked to say good things about myself. That bio was really hard to write, to read, to write, and and hear. But like, I feel the need. I felt the need to be entertaining and say something new. But I don't have anything new. I, it's the same. It's like if you can ask me the same question, I'm gonna give you the same answer. It hasn't changed. Uh, <laughs> my superpower is being able to hold contradictory beliefs at the same time, which opens me up for a whole world of great and very obvious jokes, which I'm gonna try to avoid. I do really appreciate the internal consistency of like I already told you what my superpower is 
this is it. I'm a little bit ironic, though, given what your superpower <laughs> is. Which it also is not my superpower. And again, those are the jokes I'm trying to avoid. <laughs> okay, I have to ask this question. It's on my mm. mind. So, Neighborhood Council Management System says, volunteers working in very local government. What do you mean by very local government here? Uh, so, the city of Los Angeles has, um, well, has what is called the Neighborhood Council System. There are 99 neighborhood councils covering various neighborhoods in the city as an advisory board to the city. Uh, so, the one I'm on, the Hollywood Studio District Neighborhood Council, where I'm on the board, I'm the secretary of the board, covers an area of about one and a quarter square miles. I should know this. We have something on the order of 30 or 40,000 residents uh, and, you know, multiple other stakeholders. So this is, this is literally as small as government as I know exists in the United States. That's so interesting. Yeah. I have strong political opinions that government should be as local as possible and democracy only works on a very small scale or at the very least works best on a small scale. Uh, when I found out that this existed, I was like, well, I have to, <laughs> I have to put my money where my mouth, or my effort where my mouth is. And there I am. That's great. I really admire that. People are like, focus at home. I like, I, I agree with that, but they normally don't mean that close to home as, as you just said. So I find that interesting. <laughs> yeah. One and a quarter miles. You could, you could walk around it in a, uh, you know, it's a long walk. You'd be tired. It'd probably take up most of your day. But it, it would be nothing to walk the borders of the Hollywood Studio District. Walking every street, though, that's kind of a week-long uh, sort of endeavor. So you didn't think we were going to let you get away without telling us how you acquired your superpower, did you? You know, I was all set to meander into that question. I was like, eh, I had nowhere to go. Let's see, how did I acquire that superpower? <laughs> Ooh, don't want to tell that story. Uh, <laughs> how did I know that? But that's not that true story anyway. Huh. Wait, are you saying that you have, like, a fake origin story for your superpower that's not even true? Honestly, I, I've never, I've never, did, did you ask, I think I got a weird answer to this question last time. I don't know how I acquired that power. <laughs> I, I, really, I, I came up with the story and decided that it didn't work. Um, just now I came up with a story that I didn't want to tell, but it wasn't, but it wasn't a true story anyway. So it's a true story. It doesn't explain how I acquired that superpower. I will say maybe not how I acquired it, but how I came to recognize it is through my training in hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming and greater understanding of the limitations of human rationality, of human cognition, mostly human rationality, and how humans are not rational in the way that we think rationality works. Uh, that may not be how I acquired it. That's the very least how I came to recognize it. So, Amy, it's good to see you again. There's a whole bunch of stuff we could talk about. I know you wanted to talk about bad code, and I'm, I'm excited by that. Should we talk about bad code? I think we should. I, last time I was here, we, we, uh, <laughs> I love the title. Did Mandy give it the, the title going off the rails? I absolutely love that title. <laughs> cause, cause we spent the whole time just way off the rails into philosophy and, and metacognition. That's <laughs> largely my fault. <laughs> well, you know, I, you, you're the host. So, so if you let me go there, I'm going to go there. Boy, boy, did we go there. But yeah, so let's talk about let's talk about bad code because that's so much more practical and I, and I think they're I think it's tightly related. Well, I think the first thing I want to ask you, like as we get started talking about it, is like, well, what is bad code? 
I am so glad you asked because that is the <laughs> first thing to talk about, right? When, when I write about it, I put I put bad in quote. You know, you can't. Well, you you guys can see me. <laughs> the pe- the people around me uh, on the other end of the podcast can't see me making air quotes around bad. So again, what is bad code? I I have a computer science degree from, from MIT. Uh, and the thing about being at MIT is that the people there think very highly of themselves and their technical ability. And I'm including myself. I was one of them. Um, and we tend to have very strong opinions about what was technically bad and technically good and technically correct and technically wrong. And these things sort of infect the people there, infect people in probably a lot of CS programs and infect the people in, in software engineering teams. So you get these judgments like, well, there's a duplication here. There's uh, something you could abstract there. This can be done in three lines instead of four. Or, you know, don't use ternaries, which is true. Don't use ternaries. <laughs> Except when you do. <laughs> um, we have all of these tools that we learn in our CS programs that we learn uh, elsewhere. And, and we apply them as much as we can. And when they're not applied, we think, oh, okay, this code can be improved by applying these tools. But that's not always true. Sometimes it's very, very false. So I think, I think we're going to talk about like what really is like, so that's what I talk about when I say, when I say bad code, I think I'm making this up as I go along. Um, things where, where our knowledge and our skill and our hard won technical expertise hasn't been applied. Uh, to make the most beautiful, abstract, sort of platonic ideal of what software code should be. And then we judge that as bad because it's not there. I was going to say, I'm not sure that I've ever written any code that feels like the platonic ideal of what software should be or worked on any. Certainly not in the real world. Uh, <laughs> but maybe you've done an exercise like that. Maybe you've done um, exorcism has, has uh, great exercises. They're all very toy problems. Um, if you're doing something like Hamming distance, there are beautiful examples of functions to calculate Hamming distance in all sorts of languages, and they're all very beautiful, and they all tell you a lot about the language and about computing and about it being idiomatic in various languages. But that is not the job, generally. That's an exercise. <laughs> I think this whole thing is predicated in an interesting way on this idea that like some code is better than other code and code can be beautiful. And I agree that code can be beautiful, but I think that like for people outside of our industry, like my partner doesn't know much about code other than like what he hears from me. And it doesn't occur to people that it's like so subjective. Like it seems like it doesn't work and it's broken or it works and it's good. It's like a all or nothing. And like, obviously, that's not how it is and feels to people who work on it. But I think it's kind of interesting the way that computer science and code kind of is in the middle of, you know, art is totally subjective. You know, a lot of math is like pretty objective and software is kind of like in the middle. That wasn't a question. I'm sorry. No, no. but but (laughs) There was one thing I wanted to dig in there. And then and then like, but then there's new things like. Is code in, is there, is there sort of, I feel like I'm getting more abstract, but I'm trying to avoid that. Um, is there oh, a, yeah, it's my fault. Okay. All right. <laughs> You're the one who said it was your fault. It wasn't me. I'm, uh, I'm there, beginning to reconsider. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there a spectrum, spectrum between objectivity and subjectivity? And if there is, where does, where does software code fit on that spectrum? 
I don't know if that's true. But <laughs> practical stuff. You said two really interesting things. Code can be beautiful. And I think code should be beautiful because things should be beautiful, especially things that we work with on a daily basis. If you're never going to look at the code again and it's ugly, it's fine. <laughs> but if you're going to have to look at it and work with it, it should be beautiful because that makes you happy. And then uh, beautiful and then it works, which is functional, right? Like it does what it needs to do or what's intended to do or what's best for its users or best for the people uh, paying you or hopefully all of those things at once. And I think these are the two, these are the two greatest metrics to the two best metrics to measure code on. Does it make the world a better place? Does it serve its users? Does it serve the people creating it? Does it serve people paying to have it created? Does it serve the world? And beautiful, which is a great metric by itself because it's inherent. It's an aesthetic thing. It's like, I look at this and I, I feel pleasure. So that, that's great in and of itself. But also, I think that's a factor of, is it clear? Is it easy to understand? Is it easy to work with? Does it convey the meaning that needs, that wants to be conveyed? I think those are what I, what I mean when I, or those are the aspects that make code beautiful to me. So these are the two important things that I want, I want code to be. How do you make code that serves the people who pay for it and also the world? Because I don't know how to do that. You choose the right people to pay for it? Where are they? <laughs> how do I find them? Okay, so I was going to blame you for going really abstract, but this isn't abstract. This is actually just, it's farther away from code. Uh, so I'm literally saying, where are those people? Show them, show me those people. <laughs> Bring them to me. Sometimes you have to be those people. I'm not currently employed because I can do that better than anybody who was willing to employ me and pay me very well. But maybe I have to compromise and get employed anyway. But there's this concept in economics that the goal of a corporation, the goal of a company, the goal of economic activity is financial improvement. Do you make more money? Does the number of dollars increase? Like that, that's the only goal. If you really operate with this as your only goal, you're a psychopath, right? And there's this idea that corporations and companies and should be psychopaths and the people who manage them and work for them should behave to satisfy those psychopaths. And I disagree with this wholeheartedly. And there's another, there's another school of thought that when you do good, you do good. If you really, if you're really out to serve people, you'll make more money in the process. I'd like to believe that. I like to believe things are nice, but I don't believe that's necessarily vital to actually doing that. You know, if it costs you a little bit of money not to be a psychopath, pay the money. Yeah, that's money fun. well spent. <laughs> yeah. Rain, I can't believe I'm sitting here listening to you say, show me those people. When this is episode 200, you can go back some of those 200 people. Come on. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'm done scolding you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I gratefully accept the rebuke. <laughs> so, um, Russell Acoff has a different thing that he thinks is the purpose of a corporation. And Stafford Beer thinks that the purpose of an organization in general is just to survive. But he thinks that the purpose of a corporation is to provide a comfortable lifestyle for its executives. I love that first definition because, because it's so Darwinistic. The purpose of things that exist are to continue existing. We know that's true because if it's not true, they would stop existing. <laughs> the other one is weird because a comfortable lifestyle for its executives. 
I feel like a corporation is designed to serve the shareholders. Uh, but then again, the executives are agents of the shareholders. So maybe there's an agency problem there. It's theoretically designed to serve the shareholders, but then the decisions are made by the executives. Yeah. So there you go. That, definitely an agency problem. So how do you know when code is bad? I like the metrics Jimmy brought up. Uh, functional and, and beautiful, right? Does it serve people? And is it pleasant? So you look at a piece of code and you go, that's bad. How do you decide what to do with it? I'm so glad you asked that question because I wanted to get back to, to that. Like, sometimes I decide not to do nothing. Not to do nothing? I mean, do you decide to do something? <laughs> I decide... I decide to do nothing. There we go. <laughs> there is, you know, again, I have a CS degree. I see code that don't look good, that isn't beautiful. And I, and honestly, I write code for the pleasure. <laughs> I, I love to write it. It's, and, and it's, I think it's great. And making it beautiful is the best part of that. And so when I see something that's not beautiful, I work on changing it. I, and I want, or I want to change it, but Sometimes, well, okay, no. When I see something that's not beautiful, I want to change it. But the wiser decision is often to do nothing for a couple of reasons. One, maybe that bit of code doesn't need to be beautiful. Again, if you're not going to look at it again, why fix it? You know, if it's just going to sit on some bits on a, we don't have hard drives anymore, huh? If it's going to sit with some bits on an SSD, <laughs> why does it need to be beautiful? You know, for the aesthetic pleasure? Okay, sure. But at least admit to yourself that you're doing something for aesthetic pleasure, not, not for its productive value, you know? But also, if it is something you have to work with, maybe today's not the day to make it beautiful because today's not the day you know enough. One of my favorite phrases, you'll never know less than you know right now. You don't, if you don't have to make that decision now, put it off. If you don't know how to fix, how to make this beautiful, how to fix this piece of ugly code, then why do it now? Wait as late as you can, which is probably going to be next time you want to, next time you want to change the way that code works because making it beautiful will help you do that. But if you can wait, wait, that was a long way of saying don't touch the bad code unless you have to. I know it's bad. It's okay. If it works. It's so comforting. I know it's bad, but it's okay. I feel comforted now. Ah, oh, it's so hard, you know? It's it's so it's so difficult. Sometimes I just need someone to tell me that I'm bad, but I'm okay. <laughs> you are bad and you are okay. That <laughs> Thanks, Damien. That that was it, by the way, that was a huge, huge realization for me. I literally couldn't make a lot of self improvement because I couldn't admit that I had things that needed to be improved because if I did, that would make me a bad person. And that was something my ego would not allow. We've talked about like the code itself, but what about if the problem is that like you're working with someone else who like doesn't agree with you about what makes code good or bad, then what do you do? I'm going to steal some advice that somebody gave someone else in a Slack channel I was in this week. And I feel bad that I can't credit them because I don't remember who it was. But they said, go to values, right? What are the values you have? And I think everyone in this occupation, everyone writing code for an occupation, and most people writing code in general, uh, there are a few values that, that they can agree on or that we can agree on. I guess I'm one of those people also. Well, there's one really big one that I guess I should go to second. 
uh, the more important one. But the second more important one is, can we understand this? Does it convey the meaning that we want it to convey? And that is different for different people. Some people like functional code. If you grew up in Lisp or JavaScript or some other abomination without state, I don't know, <laughs> like long chains of functional code make a lot of sense to you when you can follow that. And that that's how that's how your mind works. And you're like, yeah, that's entirely. I know exactly what that does for a person who is more versed, embedded. Eh, pick your own verb, pick your own adjective. <laughs> Who's more into the, the object oriented world. They're going to go, okay, wait, what in the world does this thing even return? How am I supposed to follow these three chains of things that are, that are like transforming this collection or what's, I don't, the things don't have names. What are they? I have no idea what's happening here. And that's one example. And the truth is this happens on, on every axis. There are things we're more comfortable, people are more comfortable with, other people are less comfortable with. There are things that fit better internal models. Your one person's internal model and doesn't fit another person's internal model. And so what is most communicative, and this is true in every language, not just computer languages, but what is most communicative for individuals varies. And so if you're working with individuals who have strong variation among that, then you get to find a compromise. And when you go to the values like, okay, you know, what is the value here? I want this to communicate something. And I look at this and it doesn't easily communicate that. And maybe it communicates it easily to you, but you know, can we accommodate what's easier for me to understand? What's easier for the rest of the team to understand? And sometimes, you know, sometimes you're on a team with 10 SQL pros and these nested left joins are just the thing that I have to learn to deal with. I've been there. And then I have to learn to communicate the way they do. It's, it's not as bad as having, it's not as bad as, you know, joining a team where they speak Spanish, but it is, uh, it's not easy. And, and I think that's what it comes down to is like, Code is a language, it's communication, and there are dialects, and there are different ways of expressing yourself, and the goal, the values and the goals are to communicate. So when you, when you go from that point, you may not like where you end up, but it's easy to find, well, you have the tools to find a compromise from there, or to find agreement. This was really small, but I just caught the way that you said, you started to say you have to find a compromise, and then you stopped yourself, and you said, get to find a compromise and i really like yeah. that yeah yeah uh rain reminded me i was an ontological coach and that was the one of the biggest <laughs> one of the biggest language uh things that they kept doing and they they trained me to do i don't know if ontological coaching does this but virginia satire trained me to get at the end of limiting things that i say about myself like i can't play the piano yet yeah, that's that's a great trick, and, and you'll find that in both uh, most any um, neurological program, NLP training. It's which got it from Virginia Satir, I'm sure. I've been working very hard for the past couple of years on thanking people instead of apologizing. Instead of "I'm sorry I was late," thank you for being patient. That is a wonderful, wonderful trick, and I'm so glad that you that is something that you can do now. I'm still working on it. <laughs> so all three of these things, because uh, <laughs> I promised that this was going to be more practical. Um, all three of these things are, are deeply embedded in, in hypnosis and, and NLP and, uh, and is all, I'm heavily used in ontological coaching even. But they're all, they're all language, right? These are all ways to communicate and communicate clearly. 
And by making these changes, you communicate a different thing. In the same way that like changing the name of a function communicates a different thing about that function. When you say, I cannot play piano yet, what you're communicating is that at this present time, I can't play piano. In the future, I may be able to, which is a different statement than I can't play piano. When I say you get to do something instead of you have to, what I'm presenting is an opportunity, a a chance to do something that you want to do instead of a limitation or obligation. I did say, I did promise this to be practical. I was trying to bring it back to code. <laughs> be precise and careful with the variable and method names there. You've mentioned the hypnosis. Obviously, you read it in your bio, but you've mentioned it like a couple of times since then. This is, I'm the one taking it away from code now, so you don't have to feel bad about it. I'm just curious about that. Like, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about like what you do with that or maybe how you got started in it. It's just like, it seems really interesting. Yeah, I mentioned it three times because it's in my bio and, and Rain read my bio. And so when people remind me I'm a hypno- hypnotist, I start acting like one. Um, That's how the trick works. Yeah. <laughs> the most important thing to know about hypnosis is hypnosis is not something that a person does to you. A hypnotist does not hypnotize you. A hypnotist gives you clear, simple, and easy instructions to follow to, to which if you want right now, you can be hypnotized. Um, I I love it so much and so what it comes down to is it's a use of language to help people into a trance state and a use of language to speak to their subconscious and we talked about that a lot like how how the importance of how what we do is communicate and we communicate in a language and being able to communicate to the subconscious is very much like being able to communicate with the computer it's just a different language. You have to, you have to speak differently. And we do it all the time. You know, any, anybody, you know, you can pull somebody off the street and most of them will be able to, to give you a recipe. If they've ever cooked anything, they can give you a recipe for it. Just like anyone you communicate to is in some way speaking to your subconscious. Intentionally is a strong word, but not accidentally, I'll say. People know how to speak to subconscious. One of the easy ways to do it is think about how you speak to a child. Children are almost entirely subconscious. They don't have the critical filter developed, which is why when you tell them things, they believe it. So be careful what you tell them. Uh, the same is true of, of adults. You know, we have a critical filter, so so we're less susceptible. But there are techniques to bypass the critical filter, and the easiest one to apply is repetition. Um, if I repeat something, you know, if I if I tell you something over and over again, even though your critical filter may you know, prevents it from getting the subconscious through repetition that we get through and it will, and your subconscious will take it in. So yeah, I also cannot play piano yet, but I'm getting better. I was thinking about a, a thing I did at a recent thing I facilitated where we, I uh, co-facilitated where we got a bunch of people together and tried to think about basically new experiments we could try that could help the company deal with a challenge that it's currently facing. And so the first thing I did is I explained what are the three failure modes of adaptive systems, um, which are bounded rationality, where you can have local decisions that are good locally, but don't lead to a good global decision. So locally rational, but globally irrational. Um, the second is following a plan when you shouldn't anymore. And then the third is, oh crap, I can't remember it. Uh, but what I did is I, I did a stage setting where I explained those three problems. And then I said, go think of any experiment you want that we could try as a company. 
And then all of the experiments I got back had to do with one or more of those problems. I didn't explicitly say we're trying to solve these problems. I just sort of offhandedly said, oh, I'm going to tell you about adaptive capacity now. And then I said, go think of things that we can do. And just conveniently, they they were primed to think about, to be aware of those problems. Yeah, priming is the exact word they use in NLP, hypnosis, magic, uh, and I think sales also. <laughs> so, you know, one of the answers was like, why don't we do like a speed dating thing with, with all the teams? We have like 50 teams in our engineering org where each week a pair of teams will get together and then every, you know, 25 teams are paired with another 25 with one other and no each month and then that'll like rotate around so each month your team is paired with a different team and then you just like talk about how you know how things are going what you're trying and so that was an idea that came from the people in the meeting i thought it was great and it directly addresses bounded rationality you know it gives people a broader context yeah and so that bit of priming that that you did in that meeting uh was super useful you didn't have to tell people that's what you were doing. You didn't have to tell people that was the goal they were solving. Um, so we can also do that in code, right? I'm trying to think of an example. I can't, I can't think of one right now. I'll use a different example that is not as relevant, um, but is very obvious to me right now. There is a campaign, multiple campaigns actually right now, surrounding the RuboCop gem. The, the language around RuboCop is very prescriptive. It's very much, you know, you do this. Otherwise, you're wrong. You're bad. This is an error. This is uh, and and yeah. And so once once you put it in that system where where you're judging people, you're judging code, you're bringing up a carceral punishment system regarding around it. Now, there's nothing wrong with code styles and style guides, and there's nothing wrong with choosing a style and sticking with it. These are good things. I like them for the most part. I have I use a very strict style guide, but the language around it is around. Judgment and punishment. And that's going to impact how the engineers view what they're doing. Yeah. This reminds me of when I facilitate incident reviews, I start out with the Agile Prime Directive, which is everyone here is doing the best they can with the information and resources they have available to them, right? And the reason I think that's so important is that there is research that shows that the severity of blaming judgments has a lot to do with immediately prior mental states. So if wow. I'm feeling happy, I don't blame as severely as if I'm feeling angry, right? Sort of obvious. But if I've just been told that everyone is doing their best, I will be less likely to think that people weren't doing their best and thus blame them for being incompetent or, mal or malicious. That's such good advice. And it's especially important when doing incident mitigation. And it just goes to how important that is throughout your team, throughout your organization, in order to keep people, ah, what's what I'm looking for? Safe? Healthy? Productive? There's a lot of words. Rain used the word blame in his, in his description of it, and it got me thinking of like how get blame is kind of the same with the language. It puts you on the offensive with people. Absolutely. And the, the, the synonym for that in get is annotate which is a shame because it's a long word that's hard for me to spell. I use credit. I, I have a global Git alias for blame that's credit. I like that. So, yeah, we're talking about these things, and individually they're tiny, or at least they look tiny, but they're not. They have impacts. And as we study, like, as we study sales and magic and hypnosis and NLP and everywhere down that line, we can see what those impacts are. And knowing these things allows us to make the impacts we want to make as opposed to ones that 
we may not want to make. Yeah, I, I saw a study that that claimed that saying somebody instead of anybody gets more responses. So if you say, "Does anybody have any ideas?" you get less responses than if you say, "Does somebody have an idea?" I like that. I I think I think I have a more effective technique. Which well, I want to look for more effective th- technique, and, and my instinct is to go, "Who has the first idea?" We presume that people have ideas, or who has the idea they want to share first. I think it's really interesting. I mean, like you said, we're talking about a lot of small changes, and it seems like some small changes matter and, and others don't as much. And I'm not exa- exactly sure why that is. I think they all matter. I mean, I guess they matter to different extents. But the small things add up, and, and actually more than add up, they multiply. The difference between a good day and a bad day is small things. You know, <laughs> was there mud where you stepped instead of grass? Was your tea oversteeped or not? <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by An Event Apart. For over 15 years, An Event Apart conferences have been the best way to level up your skills, be inspired by world-class experts, and learn what's next in web design. An Event Apart is proud to introduce Online Together Fall Summit, a three-day web design conference coming to a device near you October 26th through 28th. The Fall Summit features 18 in-depth sessions, each followed by a live moderated Q&A session with the speaker, plus unique one-on-one conversations with some special guests. You'll learn about advanced CSS from Marianne Suzanne and Una Kravitz, design systems and patterns from Mina Markham and Jason Grigsby, design engineering from Adekunle Oduye, inclusive design from Sarah Soudin and David Dylan Thomas, and much more. Attending an event apart boosts your brain, inspires your creativity, and increases your value to your teammates, employers, clients, and most of all, yourself. And you can boost it even further. Purchase a three-day pass and receive six months of on-demand access to their first three Online Together events. That's a full six days of jam-packed content for the price of three. Greater Than Code listeners can get $100 off any multi-day pass with promo code AEAGTC. Once again, that promo code is AEAGTC. So grab your spot and join an event apart online together fall summit, October 26th through 28th. See the full three-day schedule and register today at aneventapart.com. There was something else in the list of things that we said we might want to, that you sent us we might want to talk about that I was thinking about and hoping to get back to, and I think it's kind of related, which is the incredible amount of time and effort it takes to do things, even when they're easy. And that resonates a lot with me. I just started a new job and I'm like onboarding and ramping up and feeling like, oh my God, it took me so long to do this, even though it was easy. So that was kind of on my mind. But now as you're talking about like little things and how like they're so, they have impacted, they're so important. It feels like, well, yeah, even if it seems easy, like it takes time and effort because it's important and it like fits in this whole web of things in this complex way. But I wanted to hear what you were thinking about that. This is something that I had struggled with very recently, like yesterday. <laughs> um, you know, Me too. Like, <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I, I think I'm glad to hear it. Thank you for sharing. There we go. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's so fascinating observing myself having assumed that something will go quick or immediate, be done quickly or immediately, simply because it's simple and easy. <laughs> simple and easy does not mean fast. You know... After college, I biked across the country. I biked from Boston, Massachusetts. We actually we actually went out to the coast just so we go coast to coast. <laughs> I biked from Boston, Massachusetts to San Francisco, California. And that's a simple thing to do. <laughs> Honestly, it's not even that hard. 
Riding a bike is easy. West is, you know, that way. Just get up and do it. And it was a great time. But it took a long time. <laughs> and I look at that and I go, there's no way it can't not take a long time. That was three, 4,000 miles, right? <laughs> but I look at intellectual work. I look at writing and writing code. And I go, okay, I know exactly how this is going to work. I know exactly how to do that. Why do I then spend all day on it? Well, because it takes time. It still takes time. I think that's so true of intellectual work, too. Like, particularly when we have this habit of measuring our productivity and like, how many lines of code did I write? And it doesn't take into account, like, well, who did you have to talk to to figure out what you needed to do? And thinking about this and thinking through ways that could potentially touch other things. And like all of that is like important work that's not really reflected in like how many lines of code you ended up having to write. That's a, that's a really good point. I, I, Cause I, I brought up, you know, one particular blind spot of mine, which is if something's easy, I think it should go very fast, but you brought up other blind spots that I had been less aware of. <laughs> we talk about language and, and, and I get better at it. Other blind spots I had been less aware of, like that hour or two hours I spent on the couch wondering like how the world are going to do this thing I don't know how to do. That was work. <laughs> no, not a single line of code came out of it. You know, I might have at the end wrote a, <laughs> a three body diagram on a piece of paper <laughs> and that's all that came out of it. But that's still two hours of work. I was still working during that time, and that was stuff that I had to do. And it wasn't—it wasn't easy. It wasn't fast, and it wasn't going to be because it's—it's it's, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just preaching to myself, <laughs> like you know, acknowledge the work you do, Damien. You're <laughs> preaching to everybody, I think. <laughs> I struggled with this super hard when I went from being like an like a de- de- developer to like a senior developer because I was like. I should have more responsibility. I should be writing more code. I'm doing all these things. But like I was writing less code because so many of the things I was doing were like more abstract. And like I struggled with that. I felt really unproductive. And it took me a long time to be like, no, I am being productive. This is part of it. These are things I have to do. Someone else was doing these things for me before. And now I'm doing them myself. <laughs> that is great. That is a great example. I, yeah, I had a similar experience where I switched from engineering to product management where I could work for hours and like literally almost no keys get touched. <laughs> I'm just staring at this problem going, ah, <laughs> and again, that's, and that's work. There's no, there's no, there's not a lot of output that I can look at. Honestly, <laughs> when I do it well, again, this happens in code. Sometimes when I do it well. It's less output. <laughs> there are fewer keys because like, I know this is the same thing. And this is a simple way to solve that user problem. And it still takes time, and I'm still staring at the screen. Well, I'm not staring at the screen, or, or maybe I am, and I'm still working. I also had the only the only close I had to that as a senior engineer was when I was pairing with engineers that were less comfortable with with the code base, less familiar with with the with the technical stack, and because I had anxiety about the amount of you know not so much lines of code, but story points and features and and, and things I could say were done. I had anxiety about doing enough. Uh, that when I'm here with with engineers who are who are very who are very uh, unfamiliar, I'm like, but we have to go faster. We have to go faster. We have, we have to do this, and I get frustrated with them for slowing me down. <laughs> and then I don't know how long this took me, man. Oh, but it was it was a relief. It <laughs> made life better for everybody, for me, and oh, for those poor unfortunate souls who are pairing with me. <laughs> um, one day I realized, wait, a big part of my job is getting them up to speed. 
if we sit here for four, six, eight hours, and the only result is that they're better at doing this job, that is a huge win. That makes me feel great. Literally this morning before we were recording this, I just started a new job, like I said. I'm, like, getting used to things. And, like, someone got on and paired with me and, like, found something that I was missing. And I felt so stupid afterwards. I'm like, oh, I should have known that. I was looking in the wrong file. And I felt really self-conscious about it. So this was also comforting. Yeah, and I can tell you, like, that... (laughs) I guess... I don't know. I've been been there. No matter how much of an expert I have been, I have absolutely had, and this is, this is why I advocate pairing, even though I don't enjoy it. Um, I have so often been on the other side of that where like, not only do I not know enough to know I need help, I know so much that I can't imagine I need help. (laughs) And, and two, three, four hours, eight hours, two days later, somebody goes, Oh no, this. That's an experience. One of the things I like about pairing is that it's not a traditional teacher-student relationship. You can have a mentor-mentee relationship, but you're both focusing together on a problem. It's not a teacher focusing on teaching a student directly. Because I don't think that even works very well. I don't think teaching works very well. I think learning works very well. But I don't think teaching works very well. I love that distinction between teaching and learning. But yeah, and I think, I think the best pairing structures are when you can minimize the power differential. And I, I think there's an inherent power differential between teachers and, and students, I guess, the other end of that. Um, and that power differential makes it difficult to learn. <laughs> and again, there, we're back to your distinction between teaching and learning. Russell Akoff, I'm going to keep name dropping him, I guess, but he tells a story that I love that I'm just going to recount really quickly. So he um, was uh, in the faculty of the Wharton Business School, so big, important guy. And there were a bunch of uh, foreign students from South America who were in their like civics course or their, their civics department. So there, they were teaching someone in the in the school was teaching a class on third world development or something it was called at that point. And the students all came to this teacher's meeting, this faculty meeting, and they said, you know, we want to get involved in this. How can we join the class? And then Akoff said, no, 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 you're going to teach the class. So these 13 students, they said, how are we going to do that? And he said, well, same way that the, the, the professors learn to do it. You're going to figure out what to teach us. You're going to design a course and you're going to come and we're, and then we're going to be your students. And they did it. And then every one of those 13 students became, they then went into politics in their, their home country and they became like ministers of finance and things like that. Like every single one of those 13 left that school and then had positions where they could make like significant changes in their home country doing that thing that they learned to do by teaching. So maybe teaching doesn't work for students, but it sure as hell works for the teacher. <laughs> yeah. Trying to teach is a great way to learn. It's not a great way to teach. <laughs> oh, that's such a great, oh man, I love that. <laughs> I know this is true because I learned by having to write a talk about a concept, which is the same. 
yeah, I mean, like, how did you learn English? Did someone teach it to you? No, you learned it. I think we need to get better at learning and, and focus less on, on teaching. And I think that that has a lot of impacts for the, the mentor role, especially in tech. Well, but in both these cases, the teaching is goal driven. In fact, in all of these cases, uh, the, well, the learn, sorry, the learning. In all of these cases, the, the learning is goal driven, right? The goal is to teach, the goal is to communicate and get, you know, pitch a bottle. And then in, in pair programming, the goal is to, to improve the product, right? So I think that was my point. <laughs> you bring, you bring out a user story like this person wants to accomplish something. So that's how you learn is you have that goal and you go, okay, how do I, how do I achieve that goal? Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Actually, ACOF says if you want to, someone to learn something, you don't figure out how to teach them. You figure out how to motivate them. Give them a goal, right? A goal they want to accomplish. <laughs> There's a saying in acting, you don't pay actors to act, but act for free. You pay them to wait around. I love that. And, and I want, I want to bring it to engineering. I don't get paid to write code for you. I get paid so that I can pay my rent and groceries, which frees up time for me to write code for you. I get paid to care about your boring business problem. Ah, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> that works too. But can you imagine a world where employment was really, was not like, you know, there, there's there's a control structure of employment, right? I give you something or or a transaction. I give you something, you give me something in return. Can you imagine a world where it's I give you this so that you can do the thing you want to do because it's something I want done? That's like patrons of art. Yes, yes, there are. This this is a thing that exists. There are patrons of code. Um, they're, they're rare and not a lot, but it happens. <laughs> And then, of course, there is the power differential there, which can lead to, to that relationship not working the way that I dream of it and working more like the way people normally see employment. But, hey, say love you. I wouldn't let that stop us from talking about a better way. You know, we're not, we're not going to reach perfection in our lives, in our, in our institutional structures, or in our code. But sometimes there's good reasons to move towards it. That was overly qualified. Sometimes there's good reasons to move towards perfection. Maybe not. I'm I'm a, I'm a stick with it. But can you can you be too perfect? Uh, perfect is superlative, so no. But also yes, because perfection is undesirable, and being close to perfection is often sometimes undesirable. One thing that that I see happen so much that I almost want to call it a natural law is that the closer you get to perfection, the more effort it takes, but like exponentially more. So it might take the same amount of effort to go from 90% to 99% as it does from 99% to 99.9% as it does to 99.9 to 99.99. So yeah, that's the, that's the Pareto principle, the 80 20 rule. It works fractally and you end up with a power law relationship. There are like distributed systems proofs that are literally, you can have this property. You can't, it can't be perfect, but you can get asymptotically close if you pay exponentially more. So like the FLP paper that uh, has that result. Um, there are actually surprisingly many of them. It's so quick. It's so great when we can, um, when we can prove these and mathematically describe them. Uh, I think it's especially great because, because they are, I think they are natural laws 
and it's nice to have a clear understanding of those natural laws. Yay, math! Well, I like it because I can I can say to people, look, the thing you're doing, we can do, but here's what it's going to cost you. <laughs> yeah, there is a great, uh, and this is this is probably cultural, uh, but there is a great power in being able to point to numbers. <laughs> like it's, it's interesting. There's, but there's, there's also a great power in, in storytelling. And I, I think they have like different places or different mechanisms. Like you, if you can justify yourself with figures, that can sometimes, there are, there are places where that works very well. But if you can tell a story, sometimes that works better. Yeah. And it's, it's context and it's cultural and it's, and it's individual. Uh, and if you want to be the most effective, do both. Yeah. Numbers can tell a story for sure. I saw a really interesting talk about that once. And he talked about like all of the data that they had from Foursquare about like where people went and like the interesting stories that you could like extrapolate from the numbers of like this is where people went at a certain time. That sounds like a great talk. But yeah, there are cultural and context uh, variations on how important not just numbers, but rationalization is. <laughs> I said rationalization because I'm thinking of rationalization, not rationality and objectivity. Uh, because humans, yeah, there are cultural and contextual differences between how important rationality and objectivity are. Uh, but humans are not inherently or overwhelmingly rational. So if you want to communicate best and achieve your goals most effectively, it's best to combine both a story and a, and a rational reason. Numbers are great for, for rationality, unless they're irrational numbers. Couldn't help myself, sorry. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, and, and it's, it's great if you can interweave them because for humans, the story, the story will change their mind and change their behavior and the numbers and the rational, rational proof will give them a reason to accept that and allow it to happen. I think that what stories also do is they help us with why questions and with what for questions. So numbers are good at giving us knowledge. So like giving us descriptions of things. They're not good at answering questions like what ought we do, you know, or why is it good to do this? And those questions are fundamental and unavoidable. Those are the more, more important ones. ACOF again has a hierarchy where knowledge is about descriptions of things. So if I can tell you where the pizza shop is, that's knowledge. Understanding is about explanations. It's about know-how. If I can tell you how to get to the pizza place, that's understanding. And then wisdom is about why. If I can tell you that I'm why you need to go to the pizza place, we're hungry, we're going to go there, that's, that's wisdom. So numbers can't get you to wisdom, but stories can. So I think that's the distinction I'm trying to make. Oh, I love that because it ends with a really great, <laughs> it ends with a really great, powerful story <laughs> about the value of stories. So I think if you want to change people on the level of changing what they value or what they want to do or what their goals are, you need stories. Numbers can help, but you need stories. And so that's, that's another aspect of good code is that it tells the story or it communicates the story. I like communicates better than tells because tells describes the code, communicates which describes what happens in relationship between a mm -hmm. person and the code. Oh, I like that. There are a lot of different ways that you could write code to do something, right? 
So we have a lot of choices to make. So you can choose to value a lot of different things. And I think thinking about what you value in your code and whether you value understandability, whether you value storytelling, what that's something that I've spent some time pondering, you know, for my own career. And I think that time has been well spent. I agree. Someone tells you something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you understand it. If someone communicates with you, they're like making an effort to make sure that you understand it. You know, if someone, if someone tells you something, they might not have communicated it. There's a saying in, I think, neurolinguistic programming, the meaning of a communication is the response it engenders. Part of the reason I like that is because I like the word engenders. It's not a word that gets used very much. <laughs> but yeah, uh, communication happens in a relationship. And what is the impact of a communication is the value of that communication. Which leads to some very curious context-based things where um, I've known people who were particularly skilled at speaking to humans and they would say the exact opposite. They would say things that, you know, sounded the exact opposite to different people, but it was communicating the same thing. One of the things that I think is really important when you're communicating, you know, face-to-face is being able to create not just a shared understanding, but an agreement that we have a shared understanding. Because we need that to build on if we want to actually like construct new understandings together. You know, if I, if you want to learn or I want to teach or we want to do something together, we have to start with a foundation of understanding. And I think that's really hard to get across in code because the code's ability to communicate is somewhat limited and it's not reactive or responsive. It's just there. You know, it's kind of like, Oh, it's hard. Like if you look at all the exposition that goes on in, in novels, you know, it's because it, it requires a lot of work to get across a shared understanding of where this character is, what they're doing, you know, what, what their world is like, where if you were talking to someone, that could be shortened. So I, I guess the question that I'm getting at here is, if it's hard to, to write code in a way that guarantees a shared understanding with future readers who you won't necessarily know, what can you do to make it more understandable? I mean, I, I would, I want to make your statement even stronger. Uh, it is impossible to write code in a way that guarantees a shared understanding. That's just not going to happen. So there, there are no, what is it? There's no right or wrong. There's only trade-offs. So how do you, how do you decide on those trade-offs? One of the things, and again, this is another reason why I advocate for pair programming, even though I don't like it, uh, but just finding out what the code communicates to different people is going to make it possible to make it more communicate what you want. It's going to make it easier to make it communicate what you want. You know, um, it's a weird thing about code uh, outside of pair programming. If I'm writing a novella, if I'm writing a novel, if I'm writing uh, a, a, any sort of prose at all, even poetry, any sort of, you know, human pro uh, writing, there's a feedback, right? I write something, I show it to a person, I see what the what communi- what that communicates to them, what impact that has on them, and I adapt based on that. I learn based on that, and it's a weird thing that where that feedback doesn't happen in programming, out largely outside of pair programming, but being able to have that active feedback about what's being communicated and being able to have it with different people, because you know everybody's different. And also the context changes. So being able to have it with different people over different periods of time. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's very helpful for 
improving or getting thing, getting the code you write to communicate the things you want to communicate more. I, I think that's a thing that code review can potentially help with. I, I think that the way it's often done makes that somewhat unlikely because it's mostly just like checking off some boxes, but it could be about getting multiple different people to read the thing you wrote and see if they understand the context in the same way that you're trying to, while you're still around to tell them if they were right or not. Yeah. I'm usually at saying right or not. <laughs> There's so many barriers to do that asynchronously, right? One of them being, well, you know, you're not writing the code right now. So it's a, it's an extra activation engine to go back and make changes based on what you learn. One of them being like, there's an opportunity for a judgment context where it's like, I wrote this and you're judging it. That's not conducive to collaborating on improvement. So, so many barriers when you, to, that makes it so hard to do that when it, when you're separated from actually writing the code together at the same time. Businesses all over the world right now are trying to reinvent how they connect with the world. Whether a business is delivering packages, treating patients, or running a global customer support center, their customers need them to invent new ways to stay connected. Twilio is the platform that Fortune 500 companies and startups alike trust to build seamless communication experiences with phone calls, text messages, video calls, and more. Really, the only limit becomes your developer's imaginations. It's time to build. Visit Twilio.com to learn more. This has been a really great conversation, but we're getting to the point at the end of the show where we have to kind of wrap up. And what we normally do is everyone will reflect on something that stuck out to them or may they want to think more about or that they want to bring into their lives and, and let it inform the things they do or anything like that. And I, I'll go first. One thing that I have been thinking about over like the course of the whole show is this idea of like doing things yourself. I think it came up in a few different ways from all of us. Like I was talking a little bit about like being a senior engineer and taking responsibility for things that other people used to do. And Damien was talking about how someone doesn't hypnotize you. They like help you become hypnotized. And Rain was talking about teaching and like learning and how you have to do learning for yourself. And I think that that theme is really interesting to me because it suggests that you have to take this responsibility, but I think it also like suggests that you kind of get to take like assert control and power over yourself and like the own, the things that you do in a way that could feel very affirming. And I want to think more, I guess, about that as I'm doing stuff like, is this, oh, I have to do this for myself and like no one will help me? Or is it like people will help me, but like I get to do this myself the way that I want to do it and the way that I feel comfortable with it. I like that. It's so empowering uh, that, you know, these are things that I do for myself. Learning is something I, I, I get to do for myself. And that's the only way it happens. And, and uh, self-care and something. <laughs> talk speech for myself again. Something I get to do for myself. And that's the only way it happens. And all the other examples. That's that's just, yeah. It's, it's super empowering. Thank you. I, I've been thinking a lot about the importance of, of small changes. Even small changes in the language we use. Maybe especially small changes in the language we use. And... I think that 
part of the importance is, is not just the, the change it has now, but there can be longer term ramifications or sort of reverberations of those changes. I think that the way I've heard it said before is the easiest way to make a big change is to make a bunch of small changes. I think that's very true. And I guess what I'm going to be thinking more about is how to find those those nudges, those small changes, how to know when there's an opportunity for one to work because sometimes they work really well. Sometimes they have a huge outsized effect and sometimes they're not even noticed. And I don't yet understand how to know the difference. And I think if I did, I could be better at making those small changes. Another thing that was really striking to me was at the very beginning of the episode when we were talking about code being beautiful. One thing that Damien said was like, well, I want code to be beautiful because I like things that are beautiful. And like, I really like that because like, there doesn't need to be another reason. (laughs) And I like that like small, simple reason. Like, that's the reason I want to like, I want to use that. I like it. And there's no other reason. Yes. Makes me happy. Oh, I just want to absorb that. Isn't aesthetics purpose its, uh, itself? <laughs> and isn't that valid? Well, depending depending on who you listen to, it's either the only purpose that matters or it doesn't matter at all. Or I can believe both. <laughs> well, I read a lot of Oscar Wilde, and it's definitely the only purpose that matters. <laughs> and then uh, Rain with his small changes, like, that's so, that's so great. I... <laughs> I feel honored to have been part of a conversation where those things came out. <laughs> I feel I feel so super special. <laughs> I could I could leave on that because that's a beautiful note, but I'm gonna say something else, <laughs> um, which is like the the thing the thing that I, w- I want to take away from this though is the power of language and story and its application not just not just in rhetoric and politics and in and in art and, and those, those worlds, but its application in the, in the engineering world, both within a team and its application, even, even like, even as dismissive, <laughs> its application in the code you write. Computer code tells stories. Computer code has, is language and small changes in the, and careful choices in that language and in those stories are very impactful. I remember that one as I write. That was really nice. Thank you so much for coming on. This was really great. I think this was a great Thank- episode 200. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed being here on the Milestone episode, too. That's so special. Well, I, I think it was a special episode, and I'm really glad that, that you were the one to do it with us. All right. Well, you can all go away now because we're done. <laughs> <laughs>